Hello, and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of the CHS Alliance initiative to cultivate care and compassion in aid organizations. Today, you'll hear me talk with Tori Peace of Aid for Aid Workers. We both have podcasts to support aid workers, and we decided to do a podcast exchange. We interviewed each other for our respective podcasts about people-centered leadership in aid and development. With 12 years experience as a leader in international development, Tori facilitates rising and established leaders in the aid world to achieve optimal fulfillment in both life and work through creative solutions that align with their organization's values as well as their own personal values. Tori coaches leaders and shares learning through her blog, through a podcast, and through a digital course to teach supervisors in international development how they can coach their teams. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So Tori, I've already introduced you in the beginning, but I would like to know if there's anything you yourself would like to share with our listeners today who might be new to your work. Yeah, sure. So just in terms of the things that I'm uh, most passionate about and that I, let's say, specialize in, one is I love helping uh, aid workers or humanitarians, development workers, whatever you want to call yourself, uh, to think in different ways. So Mm -hmm. I love, and I think that's how I naturally fell into coaching because Mm. I love changing people's perspectives or getting them to think about different issues in a different way. Um, So that's part of um, what I strive to do through my podcast and through my work. Also, um, I value if like, if you go to my website, you'll see that I talk about people-centered leadership. So really putting people first and and leadership um, and, and I think a lot of times we lose track of why we're really doing what we're doing. And it's really about the people, not only the people in the community, but also the people that we're leading. And so making sure that, you know, the results will come second if you put the people first. And then the final thing is I really am passionate about helping uh, humanitarians, aid workers, supervisors to help empower others. Uh, And I know there's kind of a general movement around like localization, nationalization and all these Mm -hmm. things. Um, And I I really uh, feel strongly about, you know, big component of that is how do we empower our own teams? How can you as a leader really um, uh, help your team members to grow and to fulfill their full potential um, as is done a lot of times through uh, coaching? Excellent. This is uh, really relevant for, for example, the core humanitarian standard, it puts people at the center. And uh, you are definitely looking at people-centered approaches with leadership. And also you talk about empowering others. And it's interesting to think about the localization movement in the context of empowering your own team. So embodying the change you'd like to see with localization, embodying it in how you work within your own team could be quite informative Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, like you talk about a lot about living into your values. Well, Mm -hmm. that's one of our values, right? Is, is how do we, you know, like in, in the organization I used to work with, uh, they talk about subsidiarity, like the people Mm -hmm. closest to the problem are the best 
ways to solve the problem. So I see that as kind of the same kind of issue. A lot of times um, when we're talking about empowering our teammates, it's about, you know, recognizing that a lot of times they're the ones that are best poised to solve the problems that they have. <laughs> I love this right now. Uh, I'm super inspired by Frederick Laloux's book, uh, Reinventing Organizations. They talk about the teal organization where you have decision-making is reallocated so those who are closest to the action make the decisions it's, it's about it's, it it requires a, a a dynamic trust but i digress we get into that um i would love to hear your story behind the podcast what inspired you personally to go on this journey and sharing um, your learning and engaging people through this medium yeah, well, the podcast has been going about, geez, I think it's almost four years now. And uh, I initially started it because I, when I became a leader or supervisor of more than like two people, I realized that I really had never learned a lot about leadership. Sadly, even though I have a master's in business, none, you know, a lot of the, what I learned in that um, program was more around management and theory, but it wasn't around like, how do you lead people? How do you get people to follow you or want to follow you and inspire people and motivate people? And so I started looking for resources on this and I found a lot of books and podcasts and all these things. But at the time there was nothing really for development workers or humanitarian workers. And so I decided I would fill that gap by starting the podcast. Um, so I started by interviewing mainly people within my area, which was East Timor at the time, um, other country representatives, um, leaders who could talk about you know, practical things that they were doing in order to overcome challenges. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's kind of evolved from there. And now I do like some interviews uh, with different people in the sector and then some in which I just um, give my own practical insights on not only like how to do things like through action, but how to mm -hmm. think about things through mindset. Mm. Can you say about more about mindset? Because I think that's something that's really important to your work. Yes, um, I've realized more and more over the last few years that mindset really is, it comes down to the way that we show up, the way that we are able to achieve the results in our lives. I mean, the way I, I acknowledge that, um, you know, in, in humanitarian work, Mm -hmm. Yes, there are certain things that are out of our control, but how do we focus on what is within our control and have the right mindset in order to really um, achieve the, the goals or the results that we want as leaders or in our lives? And, and I think that, you know, when you look at the results of where you are in your life, a lot of times, I mean, probably you know, 90% of the time where you are and what you've achieved is because of your mindset. What are the mindsets that you're seeing in the aid sector? Well, there are a few things that a few limiting, let's say, mindsets, you know, of course, has to do with your thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, when we talk about thinking that does not serve you, you could say mm -hmm. that those are limiting beliefs. And mm -hmm. I see 
three common ones that prevent leaders from thriving and doing great things. So do you want me to share those? Yes, please. I'm, right, I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, the first is the idea that leaders have to always be available or they have to have an open door policy. Mm-hmm. And I think this comes partially from the private sector and from the Western world or the global North, as you would Mm -hmm. say. Um, But this idea that as a leader, I always need to be available. I always need to be reachable. Uh, If I'm not, something's going to go wrong. Um, And if I close my door, (laughs) then it means that I'm not a caring leader. And I've coached so many people around this Mm -hmm. uh, because I think what happens is once we dig into that, Mm -hmm. what is coming from a place of um, number one, wanting to prove yourself. So like Mm -hmm. um, wanting to prove that you're a good team player, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you are one who shows up and that, that you're proving that you're worthy of whatever it is role that you have. Mm. Um, and number two, uh, some of it has to do, I think also with, with trust. Mm. Um, but also number three, I think sometimes we overvalue our, Mm. our roles as leaders, um, Mm. and, and don't necessarily realize that even if I'm not available for certain times, it doesn't mean everything's going to fall apart and that you as a leader, when you don't close your door. And what I mean by that is when you don't take that time that you need to not be available so you can work on, you know, important focused work. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, your team is also going to feel like they always have to be available for one Mm -hmm. thing. And for the other thing, when you if you're always available, really, you're never available. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because when you are always letting people interrupt you and, um, you know, come to you with a question or mm-hmm. reach you by text or whatever it is, zoom yeah. call, whatever, then that means you are always going to have in the back of your mind, all the things that you need to work on in which required focused thinking time. And so that means that actually when somebody comes to you, you're not going to be fully available to them. So what I tell the people that I coach a lot of times is mm-hmm. by setting these, these um, time frames where you're not available, mm-hmm. when you are available, you can fully show up and be present and really mm-hmm. be available. So that's the first myth or the, or let's say limiting belief that I see can, can really help, um, prevent leaders from, um, achieving great things. Um, the second one has to have with feeling like a leader feels like they have to have all the answers. And, Mm. and this is really interesting. So I, teach uh, coaching to mm-hmm. aid worker supervisors. So a mm-hmm. lot of times my students really struggle in the beginning, that mindset shift from I'm the one with all the answers and the giving advice to my team on what to do and how to do it, that shift into 
how do I work with them to come up with their own solutions? And this mm -hmm. is where coaching comes in because it's very mm -hmm. helpful. And how do you ask questions in a way that your team can come up with their own uh, way forward and so on. And so what I find is that uh, leaders, sometimes they think that if they're not telling their teams what to do, or if they're not giving them advice and something, mm. somebody comes to them for advice, then it, they are also not being a caring leader. Yeah. Um, and so what I tell my students is that, you know, actually in the long run, <laughs> you're being more of a caring leader by getting them to solve their own problems because you know, essentially you're empowering them. You know, we mm -hmm. talked about empowerment. This is a, mm -hmm. a great way to empower your team. Um, and you're, you're showing that you trust them and you have confidence yes. in them and mm -hmm. that you do care about them enough so that you care about their perspective and how they would solve a problem rather mm -hmm. than you just telling them the answer and, and the way forward. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, and so then the third limiting belief mm -hmm. Uh, that I see that holds leaders back is perceiving that setting boundaries is selfish. Um, and of course, you know, some of setting boundaries has to do with, like we talked about previously, mm -hmm. um, being available and like mm -hmm. boundaries around your time, but it also has to do with being able to say no um, mm -hmm. when somebody asks you to do something. Mm. Uh, and, and I think this also comes back to wanting to prove yourself, like mm. prove that, you know, you're a team player and that you can, uh, do the work and, and, uh, you don't want to be seen as, like I said, selfish, mm -hmm. but by saying yes to more workload, the quality of the work that you can do actually is going to suffer. And so, you're actually being more selfish in a way by saying mm -hmm. yes, because mm -hmm. you're accepting all this work that, you know, you won't necessarily be able to do. And so you are sacrificing the, the, the quality of the work you might, you know, in the future or in that might impact the team in greater ways. Cause I, maybe you have to go back and redo the work or mm -hmm. something goes wrong. So mm -hmm being able to set those boundaries, knowing that by being able to say no, feeling comfortable saying no, that you're actually maintaining a certain standard or level of quality, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, is, is, you know, back to values. Mm -hmm. I think most organizations want to do the best quality work, um, excellence as a, as a value. Um, and so, you know, by setting those boundaries, you're actually able to better follow um, your organization's values and what they want. I think all these three limiting beliefs are so relevant. Um, I can see in my own story, you know, working in a, an open space where I was constantly being tapped on the shoulder. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I, was, I wasn't able to really concentrate on my work. And I think that's a, it's an interesting question now as we um, are at this point with the COVID story and people are deciding to go back to their work, if their workspace is open or not, 
do they have a door that they could shut? <laughs> yeah, no, and that's- do they have a door because some, some people I interviewed during COVID, they loved being able to work from home because they didn't have someone watching over their shoulder all the time. They had a little more space. Uh, now, now there's a the question: or Do we stay? Do we go back? Uh, how is this going to work? I think the issue of setting boundaries is real hard nut to crack for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of uh, reasons they didn't, they haven't been able to say no or set boundaries, maybe is a coping mechanism from the childhood, I'm not sure. Um, so when you're bringing people into that practice of saying no and setting boundaries, how is that experience you're seeing for people who are trying to put those boundaries or saying no in place? Is it something that they can instantly flip a switch in their mindset and do they do it? Or do they ha have to struggle over a period of time to get that muscle flexing? Yeah, well, and to your, your first point about the, some people don't have a door, totally, yes. And I think that the open door versus closed door is more of a metaphor in that, you know, just being mm -hmm. available. Yeah. Um, and, and what I've encouraged people, and this is pre COVID now it's a little bit easier, like you said, to set those kinds of boundaries in certain ways, maybe not from like children and things like that now, but, <laughs> um, but, but is like, how do you have that conversation as a team and actually bring it up with your team on how can we, because it's not just you that's feeling that way, right. Mm -hmm. That yeah. you always have to be available. Your team probably has uh, feelings like they also need time for that mm -hmm. focused work. And so how do you, as a team, have a conversation about what maybe we set certain hours during the week where we have focused work time, or how do we give ourselves permission to be able to mm -hmm. do that in a yeah. way that we feel comfortable? So I think that, you know, having that conversation as a team helps, you know, at least within your team and what you can control helps you feel um, more comfortable with being able to set boundaries in that way. And in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, open versus closed or being available versus having time where you're not always available in terms of the saying, no, that also can be, um, a conversation that you have with your immediate team. Now, when you're talking about saying no to others outside of your immediate team, it becomes a little bit trickier. And so I've seen some people, uh, are able to, once they have that mindset shift mm. of actually I'm doing the organization a good, you know, a favor, or this mm -hmm. is a good thing that I'm doing this, they are able to do it immediately. Mm -hmm. And then other people, they have some, you know, it takes more time. It takes maybe because it's such a habit, it takes mm -hmm. some reminders on, in terms of like, how do I, um, you know, practice this and part of it is practice right like you can role play with someone how do you know like let's pretend that you're my supervisor and you come to me and I have to say no to something what is that going to look like when you practice having that conversation you'll feel way more comfortable actually doing it I agree I've had difficult conversations I've practiced with some people before I do it because I'm yeah. very I get very I get very scared about conflict so I have to practice. Uh, so I think, yeah, that's definitely something to consider there. One of the beauties of having a podcast is you might have some analytics so you can see which episodes are getting the most downloads or you can get feedback from listeners. They're writing to you saying, we really like this, or they, they might write in saying, we'd like to 
um, learn about this topic. And you've had this podcast now, I think you said four years. Mm -hmm. um, what are the things that seem to be connecting the most with your listeners? What are they most eager to learn about? Are you seeing any trends? Yeah, well, for sure, time management mm -hmm. and well-being, um, which in a way go hand in hand, mm -hmm. um, like how to set boundaries, the things that that I've just discussed. Um, also, yeah, how to empower teams, like how do we um, strengthen and empower teams to become higher performing? Um, and also more recently, uh, as is the trend in general, like how mm -hmm. to be more inclusive. Um, mm -hmm. I recently interviewed someone about uh, diversity and in terms of um, people with disabilities and how to mm -hmm. be more inclusive of them as leaders. How can we um, create a better environment for them to feel more comfortable? Uh, how to walk our talk in terms of um, decolonizing aid and nationalizing positions. I've also interviewed uh, someone around, you know, how do we nationalize positions as, you know, coming from an international perspective. Mm -hmm. If you're an international staff, how can you prepare your staff to um, nationalize their pos your position so that they can step into it? Um, and um, of course, you know, localization as well and, and rather than top-down kind of leadership, uh, looking at how to bring things more from the down, down up. Are you hearing any very concrete or practical things that people can try to be more in alignment with this idea of moving decision-making to those who are living in a community before, during, and after an emergency? <laughs> mm. um, and in, 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 the word empowerment. Are you seeing any practical things that are being tried that seem to be having some success? I usually focus more on mm -hmm. like working within the organizations themselves and how to empower our staff. Mm -hmm. um, so I haven't done any episodes recently on like how to empower communities. Um, but there was a really good episode I did in the beginning of the podcast uh, with an organization called Bridging Peoples, and they talked about um, how to, um, like we as leaders, how can we um, recruit staff and really um, reflect, really, really put the community first mm -hmm. in terms of how we work uh, with them and, and how to, to even, yeah, like recruit staff so that, um, you, the staff that are within our organizations are also familiar with what the community is experiencing and, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're close to the community because a lot of times, um, some of the staff that are recruited, especially in INGOs, the UN, they're at a higher level education. Maybe they're mm -hmm. very removed from the community perspective. And so that mm -hmm. means our work is a little bit even more removed. Another thing though, that I focus on is, is around uh, how to work with local partners, like local mm -hmm. organizations. Um, and there was another interview that I did a while back with someone who uh, they, it was somebody from Caritas, New Zealand, and they talked about how to, um, set up a monitoring evaluation system mm -hmm. in order to kind of like 
evaluate the partnership itself, um, which was an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And the trust levels, of course, between um, the local organizations and and, um, the INGO. Mm. Um, but also, you know, how can we, and, and it's the same kind of skill set. I feel that through coaching the same kind of approach, the coach approach, you can also work with local leaders and local organizations mm-hmm. to get them to solve more of the problems that are coming up and become more independent as institutions rather than relying on INGOs and the UN or the government, whoever telling them what they should do. That's so interesting. I interviewed someone who is leading an organization in Asia and he said that he was having some challenges with the way he was his organization was being treated by an agency that, you know, in the chain, we have donors, UN, international, national, local, and you have this kind of chain, um, how the money flows. And he's saying, look, we live in a, a, we have a colonial legacy here. It's not so easy to talk back or push back uh, when we see appropriate, inappropriate behavior or treatment in our partnerships. When the money is coming our way, we don't feel this, the kind of freedom to, to speak up when we see something's not right. And I, it really stuck with me the way, the way he was trying to protect his staff um, from being asked to do things that might have been beyond the realm of possibility. <laughs> but the mm-hmm. upstream donor was saying, we need these deliverables by X date. And the context was saying, it's not going to (laughs) work. We have a lot going on. Um, So I think that it it comes to your issue of trust, your feelings of safety. Like if if we were able to communicate our concerns, we feel safe that our partners are going to have our backs. Yeah, that that relationship is is very interesting. And um, the organization that I worked with previously did a pretty good job of, of evaluating that, that relationship, but you do always have to question, well, are they just saying this because, you know, they're under pressure to say certain thing at the same time, if we as our, or INGOs or UN can facilitate those conversations and ask them and really show them we're serious about creating an environment in which they feel comfortable about speaking up and which we ask, um, you know, for feedback and, and show them we're serious that when they do give us their feedback, that we mm-hmm. are actually, um, take action and mm-hmm. do something about it. Mm-hmm. Then I think the more we can be the ones to lead that mm-hmm. conversation and make you know that space, um, probably the the more effective that will be. That underscores your point on looking inside an organization. We hear a lot about leaders who signal to the staff that they take seriously the feedback. That um, there's a book called Radical Candor where a leader leaders ask, please give me feedback. Please tell me how I can be doing better. That kind of open welcoming of feedback and then follow through when the feedback comes. That's not punitive. Like, oh, I don't like being criticized. So I'm going to make it hard for you here. (laughs) But oh, thank you. That's a gift. Your feedback is a gift. It's your point on mindset, shifting the mindset of 
any kind of negative feedback is perceived as a criticism and therefore a threat, but any kind of feedback is a gift that we can learn from knowing that we're not perfect, that's okay, we want to improve. So it's changing that kind of mindset about how feedback is, is shared and valued. Yeah, so true. And I actually coached someone around this one time and, and, and she said that her team had said they wanted feedback, but when she started giving them feedback, she mm -hmm. felt uncomfortable or mm -hmm. she felt like it was, there was some resistance there. Yeah. And I think the word feedback is very loaded. So how do yeah. we say something instead, like, um, uh, use it as like, like, I think what they really wanted was development. So this mm. is development. I'm, I'm helping you with your development. Mm. Um, here's some things that the way that you can develop, you know, or mm. use the, the, whatever vocabulary they use, yeah. um, in terms of like what they would feel comfortable with, because yeah, feedback, I think is just so triggering for many yes. people. <laughs> that how do we, you know, use a different word. And like you said, reframe that. So it's something that's seen as like, this is part of what we do. This is part of our culture. This is part of what we embrace. And, and part of that is developing ourselves and getting this feedback. I'm very inspired by um, compassionate communication, or some people know it as nonviolent communication. Um, this kind of methodology of communicating um, emphasizes that when we communicate with other people, if we communicate in a way that is perceived as judging, blaming, or criticizing, the person on the receiving end will immediately respond in a defensive way. It changes the conversation. But if the communication seems to be coming from a place of empathy or compassion, like, I care about you. I want you to succeed. Let me tell you what I've noticed that I think you could work on to to help you succeed even more um, might be received in a different way and i know what i'm saying now is easier said than done and i'm practicing myself um, but but i've seen i've seen this myself as a former manager where i've had these performance appraisals the way the message comes across can really change how it, the message is received yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, you, I mean, I think that's an excellent point in terms of compassion and, and approaching it from, I'm trying to help you rather than this is like, you know, something negative that you need to fix. Um, and, and, and like having these conversations, not just for, during performance appraisals, but making it like a regular thing, just part of like what we do. And also asking for yourself, for your own, like, how can I improve and how can I do better? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of having that kind of compassionate conversation, mm -hmm. you first need to be in a good space, right? Yeah. Like you need to be in a clean space where, you know, you're not feeling, um, emotional or triggered or mad or whatever, um, making sure that you have reflected on and clean that up before you have that kind of a conversation, <laughs> I think is important. Yeah. Having the self-awareness to say, um, I want to talk about this, but I need to collect my thoughts. <laughs> or I need, I need to take a quick break and then we'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree, it shouldn't just yeah. be in a performance appraisal, it should be immediate when you see something that uh, requires a conversation, it's better to do it in private and very close to that moment, but, but after you have arrived at the kind of mindset that you can enter the conversation with your wits about you. 
Exactly. <laughs> I can think of one or two where I'm like, oh, I should have waited on that one. <laughs> For me, I, I have this problem where I freeze and I don't know what to say. But then the next day I wake up, I'm like, ah, oh, I know what I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And being okay with taking that time, right? Be giving yourself permission to take that time that you need in order to formulate your thoughts. And I know as an introvert, sometimes it's harder for me to express myself immediately. So taking that time and like space to be able to really think through, because those are important right. conversations. And I think yes. sometimes leaders just want to fix the problem. And so they yeah. just want to have the conversation, but sometimes that's like the worst thing that you can do. <laughs> right. Because okay. then you're coming from a place for, for me, uh, I won't talk too much about it, but the compassion or nonviolent communication, it it asks you to reflect on your feelings like okay you're feeling really angry now what is the need that's not being met so what is going on underneath what are what are their needs that is kind of explain it 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 just uh the self-awareness like you say taking time to to reflect on where you are so you're not speaking from a place of anger or fear you're speaking from a place of kind of curiosity like what's going on and how can we connect? It's a it's a communication that connects people, so that there's no misunderstanding at the end of like what's going on here. It's really important in a relationship where you have a hierarchy, that the person that's receiving the the feedback doesn't feel like uh, I'm just being misunderstood here, or I'm being forced against my will to do something I don't agree with. Maybe there's more more understanding that needs to be cultivated before. It's very fascinating. I think it's great that you're working with people in a coaching way that they can learn the skills, practice the skills and implement the practice in their work setting. Yeah. And one of those best practices in coaching is curiosity. And I think that, you know, sometimes we forget that we don't necessarily know everything or we make all these assumptions. And so like you just said, moving into a conversation from being curious is way more open and, and, uh, leaves a lot of space for, um, someone to really express themselves rather than just, yeah, getting to the point, making an assumption about what happened or a certain situation. You mentioned time management. Time management yes. is something that people want to learn <laughs> about. And, uh, in all of my research with the Leading Well Project, I got lots of examples of great practice, but I didn't get any example of pro workload prioritization. So, okay, we have limited time, it's finite, but we have endless, endless tasks that we could be filling our time with. Um, and so, so naturally people said, well, we need to prioritize, but uh, it seemed that people People in our sector may have some challenges in prioritizing because there's so many demands from so many different places. And we see that in the communities we work in that um, what we're doing, it's still more could be done. Do you have any insights from your work on this issue of time management and how to prioritize our time? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with um, how you plan your week. Mm -hmm. um, so I do believe that it doesn't matter the app or the tools that you use, mm -hmm. but as long as you do take the time at the beginning of the week to plan out your week and what you would like it to look like, of mm -hmm. course, you know, it's not always going to be that way, but as much as you can, 
Um, and then of course, you know, following that work week is, 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 has to do with setting the boundaries, being able to say no, all the things that we already talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like prioritizing what to work on, I, I think that what usually gets pushed to the back burner are the things that are required focused thinking or like mm -hmm. longer term, like are usually the things that make the most impact, mm -hmm. but they take concentrated focus time and might take like an hour, two hours chunks of, of time. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about necessarily like, which thing do you prioritize? I think that people usually know what mm -hmm. they need to prioritize in terms of like that kind of focus, concentrated thinking, but how can you incorporate that more into your work week? Mm -hmm. um, so something that I used to do was every Thursday, I just blocked two or three hours for that kind of work. And I just made it something routine. I communicated it to my team that this is the time where I'm going to be working on this. I, if I had a, you know, you do have some control over your schedule and that's another limiting belief that I encounter in time management is that I don't have control. Well, yes, <laughs> you do, because you can say no, even if, you know, there's might be a consequence to that, but you do have control. It's a choice. So so how do you, you know, if you do have meetings, you set up, you know, whatever it is for your week, knowing every week on Thursday morning or whatever time is usually mm -hmm. more free for you, how do you protect that time? Mm -hmm. um, but it's up to you to protect it because no one else is going to do it for you. And what I find, which is really interesting, is that a lot of times we respect when our supervisor wants to have a meeting. We'll, we'll actually go, we respect that time. We're not going to schedule another meeting over our, our meeting with our supervisor, but if it's a meeting with ourselves, mm -hmm. we don't respect that time. A lot of times we allow mm -hmm. other things to come in and we take priority. And next thing you know, we have three different meetings in our focus time that we had slotted. Um, so really, you know, asking yourself, why am I not respecting my own time? when it comes to scheduling this, you know, certain time where I am working by myself, I have this alone work. Like, what is it about that, that I'm not, why, why is it that I'm not respecting that? I think it's a really interesting question for people to reflect on. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, an answer that comes up for a lot of people? For me, I, I, I have blocked out of my calendar. It says me time. <laughs> Me time, me time, me time, me time. Every day I have some me time that I never spend it with me. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, hello, hello, hello. But I do have, a, I have the intention. I just don't have the follow through. So why is that, do you think? I'm a person that likes to be people pleaser. Uh, so when someone asks me, like my child <laughs> or my husband or my friends or my colleagues, um, because I'm working 60%, I, my intention was I will block time for myself and I'll block time for my family. And then I have time in the middle of the day for work. But of course, work, um, often they, they have regular meetings at nine or their meeting goes long to six. And I feel like it's almost easier just to go to that meeting than to send my excuses and then follow up later. 
So I think it's just a people pleaser issue, which goes deeper, I'm sure. I have to go further into that reflection. But I realize I'm not the only one who does this. On my recent podcast interview with Hope Chiguru, she was talking about preparing for the interview and she, you know, tested the system and she came, she made sure her microphone was set up, she came on time. But she also wanted to have time with herself that day and it didn't happen. She said there's something about this idea that we we respect, like you say, we respect our obligations or time with others, but not necessarily with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a good thing, I think, to think about. Um, and when you say that you're people pleasing, I mean, what about pleasing yourself, right? You're a person too. So what about people pleasing your, your own needs and your, your, yourself and your work, you know, that's a good point (laughs) to be reflected on further. (laughs) So, you know, that our initiative at the CHS Alliance is really looking at cultivating cultures where people thrive, people feel well, they function well, um, they feel supported. The culture itself is accountable. It's compassionate there's equity, there's inclusivity, there's a feeling of solidarity of teamwork. So from your vast experience of so many topics and coaching and time with people and aid and development, is there any final reflection you'd like to make in terms of how we can cultivate these kind of different organizational cultures? Yeah, well, I think that you all, you know, the CHS Alliance and your podcast even, have it right when you're talking about values mm-hmm. uh, and aligning with our values and aligning with our organization's values and really making those alive. And, and first of all, being clear on what they are, um, being clear on what they look like, because mm-hmm. sometimes there's confusion. Some person might interpret a certain value a different way from someone else. Mm-hmm. So what does this look like in action? You know, how can we mm-hmm. really demonstrate and, and, and part of demonstrating or, or knowing what it looks like is recognizing it. So on a weekly basis, talking about it as a team, what did we do this week that aligns with our values? What did you do in your own role that reflects the values of the organization? Um, and, and like, I think the more that we really embody that, like you, you mm-hmm. say, uh, it, it can really change the culture of the organization. Um, mm-hmm. and, and of course it helps when the leaders at the top are on board with that, but it doesn't have to start, start there. You know, like when I was in uh, Timor Leste, um, we had our own operating values that we created as a team. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we had those on the wall, but we also, you know, we had them memorized, we practiced them, we talked about them all the time. It was in their performance plans, all of this. So the more that you can find ways to like actually um, make your values alive, I think the closer that you'll be to creating that kind of caring um, environment that we would like to see in the aid world. Thank you so much, Tori. How can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Well, the best way is to go to my website. So that's Mm -hmm. aidforaidworkers.com. And Mm -hmm. if you want to check out my, uh, the leadership podcast, Aid for Aid Workers Leadership Podcast, Mm -hmm. you can uh, also find that on the website. It's just aidforaidworkers.com slash podcast. 
Excellent. So we'll put that in the show notes. Um, I definitely encourage people to listen to your podcast, including uh, when we'll put in the link to the show notes on the values piece, uh, values audit, which I would like to try myself after listening to you talk about it. It really sprung true for me as something that could be a valuable tool. Thank you so much, Tori, for your time with us. We look forward to continuing to follow you and your work and hope to have you back someday. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Melissa. This has been really enjoyable. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Tori Peace of Aid for Aid Workers. You can visit www.aidforaidworkers.com and subscribe to Tori's podcast and email for weekly actionable tips, lessons learned, mini trainings, and information-packed interviews that will help you become a people-centered leader. I put a link in the show notes to our podcast where you can hear us talk about the Leading Well project and other topics that were mentioned. I'd like to give a big thanks to our editor, Ziada Abayid, and the initiative supporters, the CHS Alliance members, the Government of Luxembourg, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Netherlands. We will soon be back with another episode exploring care and compassion in aid and development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.